Welcome to the death panel. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two shows a week. The Monday bonus episode is a special thank you to patrons like the one from this week where Jules, Artie, and I discuss Pamela Paul's recent New York Times op-ed pushing the trans social contagion myth. So if you'd like to support the show, help make it possible and get access to bonus episodes and the entire back catalog, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And patrons, thank you so much. We could not do any of this without your support. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, Post about your favorite episodes, pick up copies of Health Communism and a Short History of Transmisogyny at your local bookstore, or request them at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. I'm Beatrice Adler-Bolton, and I'm here today with my co-hosts, Artie Vierkant. Hello. And Abby Cardis. Hello. And we have an important COVID episode for you today. This week, the Washington Post reported that the CDC is planning to update COVID-19 isolation guidance, ending the recommendation that people who test positive for COVID stay home from work and school for five days. So we're going to get into what's happening now, the broader context, recent history, and what it all means. Now, this news, of course, comes as we continue to see roughly 2,000 official COVID deaths a week in the United States and over 20,000 weekly hospitalizations. According to the Washington Post, who broke this story, the CDC is planning on releasing the updated guidance in April. And the reporting also contains a lot of interesting details, one in particular that I just want to emphasize here at the top. So the Washington Post reads, quote, work on revising isolation guidance has been underway since last August, but was paused in the fall (laughs) as COVID cases rose. Mm. Yeah. So we're going to be coming back to that shortly. But if the CDC goes ahead with this, it will be putting an end to some of its few remaining pieces of guidance and putting a cap on what has been an aggravating mini arc of guidance changes within the broader sociological production of the end of the pandemic. And as I mentioned at the top, the proposed guidance changes would eliminate even the already inadequate five-day isolation guidance abruptly announced at the very end of 2021, a move which, as we noted at the time, was motivated not by like some new scientific information or understanding about the COVID disease process, but out of business lobby pressure to keep people at work even through illness and out of, as Anthony Fauci said at the time, you know, this guidance change was prioritized because The worry was that there was, quote, a danger that there will be so many people who are being isolated who are asymptomatic for the full 10 days that you could have a major negative impact on our ability to keep society running. Yeah. So, I mean, I think here's what we should probably do today. And just to talk about sort of the overall context here, because I think when things like this happen, as we saw in December 2021, and was that, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's pretty fair to say, you know, not generally people who follow COVID stuff uh, or like follow death panel, for example. But I think for people in general, it's safe to say that when the CDC announces new guidance changes like this, the reaction is typically like, okay, science must have changed, right? (laughs) Or just like, oh, well, they're the ones who would know, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're the ones who Mm -hmm. would know. um, So they're probably right, whatever. And that's obviously to the extent that people notice it at all like notice the guidance change at all and i mean actually as a kind of a sidebar i think what's funny about that is that this kind of gives the lie to the whole idea that um public health like that the public has simply lost confidence in Mm -hmm. public health or whatever (laughs) because actually as we've seen as we've talked about with masking all the time when the cdc says yeah don't worry about it or whatever people fucking listen yeah right so um You know, we can talk about that tautology uh, (laughs) later, maybe. But so, you know, I just want to kind of I think what's important to do with this conversation, because we're kind of reacting to this. There's not terribly much information, although there is a lot of context that we can get into both historically. But as B mentioned, also in terms of what has happened really recently in both the media and in state governments and things like that. Um, But I think, you know, we should just do sort of an end run on that idea that it's just sort of this contextless like, oh, things are just different now and it's it's fine, actually. <laughs> yeah, totally. There's something going on discursively and rhetorically with this that I think is very interesting. And there are a couple threads that I want to pick up on as we move through this conversation. But just to start, I was reading a CNN article that was reporting about, you know, these proposed changes in CDC guidelines. And all these articles are kind of the same. They all talk about how California and Oregon 
<laughs> you know, have made these changes at the state level. And this CNN article, I, I kind of flagged it in particular because there's a line in it that I think is so it's doing a lot of work, I think, discursively. And the line is something like, oh, you know, these California and Oregon have changed their policies. And this, you know, this reflects that COVID policy is evolving alongside the pandemic. Oh, yes. And I was just kind of like, oh, record scratch. Like, what the fuck did you just say? (laughs) Like the way that this is being talked about, I think you're totally right, Artie. And the way that it's being reported makes it seem like Yeah, this is some kind of scientifically motivated decision that policies just evolve, you know, that they're (laughs) organisms just like us. And that is, I mean, simply ridiculous. But, you know, you can see why that kind of veil of scientistic mystification is really necessary. It's just a continuation of the Biden administration's approach to the pandemic, which has been coercing, you know, economically coercing people into risky situations. And the reporting about the proposed guidance changes is very, very quick to move to comparisons to earlier points in the pandemic, right? You know, it's, um, it's true that the absolute number of people dying of COVID every week is not as high as it was in January 2021. And I feel like that's like a huge rhetorical weapon being sort of deployed in the, the media right now. But it's really kind of ghoulish because to make those comparisons and to argue that, you know, well, (laughs) to argue that the science informing this decision is just that fewer people are dying of COVID (laughs) every week is to make like an explicit argument that some of these people just don't matter, you know, and that it's not the point of, of health guidance. It's not the point of the CDC to like protect people from infectious threats. I think that's what's so kind of sinister to me about the way that this is being reported on is that these comparisons hinge on the assumption that it's just like, well, who cares? You know what I mean? Like we can't stop society. We can't do anything. We can't even wear masks. You know what I mean? Like, and it also is like, we don't care if your boss makes you go back to work Mm -hmm. sick. No, we don't care that the, Evidence that is available about long COVID prevalence suggests that long COVID is more likely to occur when you like go back to regular levels of physical activity too quickly after Mm -hmm. a COVID infection, sometimes even an asymptomatic infection. And ultimately, as you're saying, Abby, the quote unquote science here is simply that the raw number of people dying is different. It is not it is. And that does not necessarily reflect any change in the virus itself. Right. This is not this is not like, oh, we have data that shows that now after this shit poor job we've done on vaccination infectious period or something. Right. That magically people don't asymptomatically transmit COVID anymore. Surprise. You know, that is not what they're saying here. They're just saying aggregate by our own measurement of deaths after we have like turned off all this data infrastructure and reporting, um, we're doing better than we were at the worst point of the pandemic. Yeah. And therefore, like, who cares? And, and, and what I think is important to, to underline here is that what they're also doing is once again, you know, something that I think we talked about when the last change happened in late 2021, you know, right after they had encouraged all this holiday travel. You have incredibly high levels of infection. The Delta mm-hmm. CEO is like worried about too many people calling out sick, right? Like this is the kind of context of the last change. And what you saw was this kind of rhetorical move in this guidance change to conceptually separate infections and sickness, right? Like that the fact Absolutely. that you yeah. have to be infected to transmit, like the separation between outcomes from COVID and catching COVID is also sort of what this guidance change attempts to achieve. And part of it is, you know, just a tremendous sort of bias and thumb on the scale in terms of making material who society is for, right? They're treating this yeah. as a precondition, as something that is real that it's okay to make the guidance reflect it, right? Instead of understanding that guidance is, you know, setting expectations, right? This removes power that workers might have, you know, against bosses who are going to say, come back to work sick because you right. no longer can say there's, you know, anything supporting your assertion that you need five days off, even, you know, probably more if you catch COVID. 
I just want to focus on this putative justification for a second, because this is, I mean, this isn't even a guidance proposal. This is like a report about they're going to do this in April or whatever. And they've been talking about it since August. So, you know, we know that the science hasn't changed on COVID and COVID transmission. We know that nothing is fundamentally different. So what is the justification that they're using? So, I mean, if we look in this Washington Post piece, for example, they say, quote, officials said they recognize the need to give the public more practical guidelines for COVID-19, acknowledging that few people are following isolation guidance that hasn't been updated since December 2021. And I want to pause on this for a second, because first of all, obviously, this will be very familiar as a argument uh, for any number of different moves to roll back COVID protections for the last few years. We've seen this, especially with masking, we always hear this thing of like, oh, people aren't doing it anyway. And I just think what's really important to mention about this is there is a huge difference between telling yourself, you know, if you're the CDC or the Biden administration, right, telling yourself, you know, many people aren't doing this anyway, so fuck it, (laughs) versus recognizing it as the political problem that it is, right? Mm -hmm. That sure, yeah, we need stronger public health guidance. Like even the current guidance, as we're sort of talking about, was flawed from the moment it was dropped. People are still regularly sick and contagious beyond the five-day period. You know, it's not it's not super complicated to understand that infectious disease can continue to be infectious beyond this incredibly narrow window that we have essentially marked out because of labor discipline, right? And the thing I think is so important to just like really early on communicate about this is like, okay, if your defense is people aren't doing this anyway, right? Well, let's look at the conditions in which people are not doing this anyway. Because, you know, if we're real about it, I think that for a lot of people, even when they hear this news, um, if they're not like particularly following COVID uh, rather carefully or anything, a lot of people might just be like, what isolation guidance? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Simply because, I mean, if you just think about like the conditions of work in this country, the conditions of work in COVID in this country, first of all, it's not like people's fucking job necessarily guarantees them sick leave for however long they're sick or sick leave at all, really. You know, I think for a lot of people, if they get COVID and they're like, okay, boss, you know, as per CDC guidelines, I now have to isolate for five days and then I can end isolation after day five if I haven't had a fever for 24 hours. My symptoms are mild without, and improving. <laughs> right. Without mm-hmm. the use of fever reducing medication. But if on day five, I do have a fever, Uh, Or if at any point during those five days, I have shortness of breath or difficulty breathing or I was hospitalized, well, then I'm going to be isolating through at least day 10. Those are the actual current recommendations, by the way, (laughs) current guidelines for uh, isolation from COVID. I'm not making that up. But, you know, if people say that to their boss, I think for, you know, a lot of people, first of all, most forms of work, if you're taking days off of work, you're probably not getting paid sick days Mm -hmm. in the first place. Yeah. Second, even if you are taking unpaid sick days, I am certain that for a lot of people, you know, the answer that people are going to get to that statement from their like the answer from their boss, right? If they say that to their boss, like, I'm going to, okay, see you in possibly 10, 11 days, right? Like the answer from their boss is going to be, okay, have fun looking for another job, you know, and <laughs> yeah, we've seen you're fired. that. Right. And we've seen that over and over again. We've seen people post like screenshots of texts with their manager or -hmm. with their employer who are like, yeah, no. Um, But, you know, the point is the real problem here is not simply like we can't just look at in a vacuum this idea of like the duration of the isolation period itself. Like, yes, sure, we can. But then we're going to be, you know, grounded always in this morass of like arguing the science or whatever, uh, Mm -hmm. arguing the you know, well, people arguing uh, contagious disease is contagious, right? Um, which, as we've seen over and over again for things like, I mean, if you remember like the the six feet versus three feet uh, arguments in oh, 2021 yeah. or simply the, uh, you know, pay people to stay home arguments in 2020, right? We know how those arguments go. Here's the science. And then obviously always ideology hegemony is going to be like, yeah, fuck that. Like we found a different expert who says this other thing. That's one of the reasons that we make fun of some of these experts all the yeah. time and like put them on display for here is someone who is just <laughs> shilling for empire for no fucking reason. Right. Yeah. But so, you know, the like the real problem here, again, is not just the duration of the isolation period itself. It's the complete lack of material support for any ability for people to do isolation in the first place. Or to take collective COVID protections at all. Mm -hmm. Yes. I said this at the very beginning of the pandemic, and I would like credit for it, okay? (laughs) I was fucking right. 
And now all these losers, I'm sorry, all these loser old white men in public health are getting just like fetid incredibly because they're like, wow, it seems that like lack of social policy really made COVID a lot worse than it had to be. It's like no fucking shit, Sherlock. Mm-hmm. You know, did the, how much money did the NIH give you to transmit this like earth shattering fucking insight? It's a it's a backwards way of thinking about how illness and sickness work at the population level in a society. And it's starting to really well, I mean, it's always scared me quite a lot. But um, in their zeal to sort of disappear covid and mystify all these changes and bend over backwards to suit the the demands of business lobbies of all kinds. I feel like some of these like health, these so-called health experts, you know, these horrible shills, I think that they have kind of like overshot the mark a little bit because what I'm kind of seeing in the coverage of this proposed guidance change is like a little bit of creep of this idea that it's just preposterous, you know what I mean, to stay home when you're sick. Um, it's preposterous to keep your kids out of school when they're sick. You know, like some of these articles are saying, like, isn't it wild that some schools require kids to stay home when they have lice? <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, uh, no, like, that's good, actually. Like, I don't know. Um, it's kind of undermining this whole logic of infection prevention in general, and that is happening in a context where we have an architecture of social policy that is actively hostile to mm-hmm. people in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, the bright, bright lights, you know, those those genius health experts that we love to listen to <laughs> somehow. Now, I don't know if it's because they genuinely have these like ideological preferences i think more likely they're just kind of ignorant and like don't really know anything about anything and are popping off in national media because people are asking them to you mm-hmm. know but our genius health experts haven't really figured out that like oh maybe and i feel like i've made this point on the podcast many times maybe the absolute disaster and tragedy of covid is showing us the things in our social policy that need to change mm-hmm. so that people don't die of preventable fucking illnesses. And that is the exactly. core. Mm-hmm. That is the core of fucking public health. And so it yeah. drives like there is steam coming out my ears reading again <laughs> all of these bloviating experts who have no fucking clue what they're talking about. And I mean, this is what makes me so mad about the equity arguments that get brought in around this. But I'm going to I've been talking for a long time, so I'm going to stop here. <laughs> well, this is OK. So this well, right. And this point is you know, exactly what I think is actually quite useful about this particular moment, because there is a little bit of time between now and when they're said to be um, putting this guidance change out, because, okay, we know that it's obviously a scientific, we know that now the originating uh, excuses for this, um, as they have been in the past, are basically something, something labor productivity, something, something, People aren't doing this anyway. Well, okay, Mm -hmm. this is presenting a very obvious political problem that Mm -hmm. I think it is clearly fundamentally wrong to respond to by saying, here are the conditions that we are saying we're responding to. Ergo, let's just drop the guidance. Right. The conditions that they're talking about are the conditions in which you say, hmm, people aren't isolating Mm -hmm. for COVID. We continue to have 2,000 deaths a week. Maybe from COVID. our guidance is not good enough. You know, like, well, no, no, no. <laughs> social policy. Not ju- no, no, not just, right. The social, po- like, perhaps this is a crystal clear signal that we should be instituting a national yes. paid sick leave program at a minimum, right? Mm-hmm. To make it so that people can actually stay home from work when they are sick, which mm-hmm. is, as we know, under current economic conditions really not possible for most people mm-hmm. right so you know I, I think that like this is just a really important thing to pinpoint and a reason why i think that like you can't talk about <laughs> i think it's irresponsible to talk about where we are currently in the pandemic and to just throw to oh well things are different now and people are taking it less seriously and oh you know no one isolates anyway ha <laughs> ha mm-hmm. like it's irresponsible to whether you're you know in the media or especially a political figure to be just sort of repeating that without 
any mention of, well, you know, things would be substantially materially different if we had different social supports for this. Things would be substantially materially different if labor conditions generally were very different in the United States, but also at a baseline, things would be very different if we had a national paid sick leave policy, something that was basically promised going in that mm-hmm. was just totally scuttled, like one of the things that disappeared the quickest as soon as Biden came in office, yeah. right? Well, and I really appreciate the points you just, both of you just made. And I want to add one thing about the example of Oregon, because Oregon is being held up as kind of the real world evidence that says this is okay. Um to give an example of this, in the Washington Post piece that broke this news, there's a sentence say. <laughs> that says, quote, after Oregon made its change, the state has not experienced any disproportionate increases in community transmission mm. or severity, according to data shared last month with the National Association representing state health officials. Now, okay. Disproportionate to what? What? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And what yes. is your definition of disproportionate? That's what I would ask if I were a fucking journalist. I mean, well, I don't, I, you can tell Jeff Bezos owns this fucking paper. Well, I want to, I want to just dig into like exactly what they're talking about here and not just the way it's being framed, but exactly what Oregon did and what yes. happened. Because What they're talking about is how Oregon in May of 2023, as the federal public health emergency, you know, has ended around the same time. I believe it is like around May 10th. It was May. Yeah. May 2023. Really early May. You have Oregon adopting these new guidelines, right, that say, you know, the symptom based guidance, similar to the recommendations for flu. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, they changed They're reporting on how many infections there are weekly, right? The New York Times uh, tracker, for example, for infections in the state of Oregon ends that same week that this policy changed. And if you look at, for example, the things that did, you know, continue to update, like, for example, how many patients are in hospitals and ICUs, you have a really interesting look, right? Which is that Yes, in the first four months of 2023, Oregon did really well with a steady, pretty steady decline in cases, hospitalizations, all of that, deaths. And, you know, when they updated their guidance to make it more flexible and to essentially just allow more asymptomatic transmission in the community, it did have an effect. You know, it did actually have an effect. Whether that was going to happen anyways or not doesn't fucking matter because you made the change, right? Right. Epidemiology, Abby, correct me if I'm wrong, but epidemiology doesn't mean that we just get to make shit up and play in hypotheticals all day, right? I mean, it depends on which epidemiologist you're talking to, but I (laughs) would say no. (laughs) Well, and I I mean, you know, I think when we're talking about trying to like use epidemiology to guide decision making, right? Like Oregon being held up as an example does not fucking hold up, Mm -hmm. right? Oregon has not continued to decline. Oregon has repeated a pattern of infection that has come, you know, beginning in late August and deaths went up. And that's how we know that infections went up because when people die of COVID, it happens because of COVID infections spreading around in the community. And ultimately what the CDC is saying is that we don't know, you know, how many people can be asymptomatically Uh, transmitting COVID. It could be a very small number of people. It could be 50%. It could be 80%. (laughs) It could be everyone. We don't know. But they are running with the assumption that it's not that many people. And they're saying because it's not that many people, it doesn't matter. And that doesn't actually make sense. It doesn't actually logic out, right? Like, and this is why it's part of the disconnection, both of like asymptomatic transmission from any contribution to community spread and therefore deaths, and also the disconnection of infections to deaths themselves, right? right? And to hold Oregon up as an example and say, well, it worked in this one state that is not nationally representative in terms of income, spatial distribution, density of cities, climate, right? Demographics. And say, (laughs) demographics and say, therefore... We need to meet everybody where they're at, as you have, you know, the limited data we have, uh, wastewater data exploding in the South in the United States, right? Yeah. So you mentioned Oregon, and because you did that, I think I want to just bring one thing in related to that, which I think is just 
so fascinating because again, you know, as we're talking about, there are two states that this is being kind of thrown to. It's like California and Oregon. Um, this reminds me also of like the Biden administration justification, by the way, for uh, ending unemployment insurance, pandemic unemployment insurance. The Biden administration justification for ending uh, masking has sort of been this. Well, you know, the states have kind of gotten ahead of us and we don't want to look like we're behind. So instead of, you know, taking on a uh, leadership role in federal public health policy, we're going to just, you know, try and uh, we're, we're going to try and uh, meet the ball where it is, as it were, or whatever. We're mm-hmm. just going to, you know, abdicate any kind of responsibility to, you know, lead on this at a federal level or whatever. We're going to we're going to go for that. And so, you know, what's being thrown to often is uh, California just recently in January uh, announced this change that they're going to be moving to dropping the five day isolation guidance. And as B mentioned, Oregon did this in May, uh, May of last year. And I think looking at, again, the justification for these things is very telling. So there is a uh, associated press report on this that we've been looking at uh, to prepare for this. And one of the, I find fascinating one of the things that is said about this, they talked to uh, Oregon State Health Officer. Um, about this change. And so I'm just going to read from this um, quote, Dr. Dean Seidlinger, Oregon State Health Officer, said that equity was a key factor considered in the decision to change isolation policy in the state. Eyebrow raising already. Um, They then quote him saying, quote, from a pragmatic standpoint, from an evidence-based and equity standpoint, (laughs) trying to make sure that we weren't unnecessarily burdening families with this isolation policy, (gasps) keeping kids out of school, or keeping people out of work who may have very limited sick leave. This made sense for us, unquote. And yep. so, again, what have we got there? People who may have limited sick leave. Hmm. Is people this a living poli- with limited sick leave. <laughs> right. I mean, it's fucking people. From, from what angle do you want to approach this political problem? Exactly. Right. Um, but also, again, I find the framing of equity which Abby, you've brought up before already in this conversation, but this framing of equity of the isolation process being a burden on families, not a uh, not a burden imposed on them by the lack of social support to correct isolate. Correct. Right. Um, I mean, it smacks of frankly, not to make not to like draw everything back to fucking like Great Barrington Declaration, because Lord knows those assholes have not been relevant for like two years now. But like the whole (laughs) let it rip philosophy and the the like totally fake, you know, the the like make believe fantasy that the, you know, Kaldorfs of the world were able to run with so long of like, oh, actually less COVID protection, less COVID social policy is more beneficial to working class people right mm-hmm. that's like that that's totally fucked. fringe yeah. idea which is so fucked up and wrong mm-hmm. is just oh that's just the thing that like the oregon public health officer is saying now oh yeah but yeah. but that's what's so fucked up about the great barrington declaration is that it has infiltrated i mean it is now like mainstream thought in epidemiology. I remember in like, I don't know, 2021, maybe it's such a blur. Uh, You know, it was like Omicron, you know, it was, it was a really, really like bad time in the pandemic. And there was a group of researchers in epi. Now this is not Vinay Prasad. These aren't like clinical people. A group of researchers at UCSF wrote, and this is the same group that has produced like the evidence that gets cited about occupational risks Mm. and occupational disparities. This is the group that published that article showing that like restaurant workers and agricultural workers, you know, were the the most burdened by COVID deaths. You know what I mean? We're, We're dying of COVID at the highest rates of any occupational group. This same group of researchers wrote a series, I think, of like just asinine blog posts about equity and saying like, well, you know, there are some fringe fucking crazies uh, in epidemiology pointing, you know, gesturing at me who say that we need to like close things down. But how does that work if you are a low income person and you have to go to work? And I'm like, well, you're ignoring like the actual coherent political critique that I'm making, which is that we need to close things down. And that's not going to fucking work if we don't give people income support. You know what I mean? Like if we don't give people sick leave, if we don't like amp up social support, because the the thing that is making this a problem is the lack of social policy. 
the thing that is making like rampant COVID spread something that we somehow just have to live with. And like somehow that's equity, you know, to like allow COVID to just spread and disproportionately kill working class people like want to talk about social determinants of health. You know, the lack of social policy is forcing people to work and to work sick. And I don't think that you can look at the, the history of the CDC guidance changes during the Biden administration and what's happening now. I don't think that you can look at those things and conclude that public health is anything other than an adjunct of the state for like rationalizing the continuation of business as usual. And like, yeah, the exacting of huge, huge tolls on people in order to keep, you know, the, the economic system functioning. Like there's, there's just, there is no other way to understand this. And I think this equity, these equity arguments really show that because they're totally, totally back. And that, I mean, it's because these people are epidemiologists They don't have any type of political analysis whatsoever. And I'm guessing that a lot of them have kind of outstanding ideological preferences because, you know, academics have a class position. We're not just out there like in the ether floating around. You know, this is this is like the work from home class who is saying, oh, but it's such an equity issue. You know, if people are supposed to stay at home when they're sick, like that that's no good because they might miss, you know, they might miss a day of wages. I agree that that is a disaster. But like, why is it that you miss a day of wages if you have to stay mm-hmm. home sick? That's the question that none of these people are asking. And none of these people have been asking for four years. And there's no excuse for that. And this is also why I think one other important piece of context to bring in here for what is kind of also happening around this shift and in the context of social policies in not just federally, but in the states, I think you know, the timing is quite interesting to me that this also comes really shortly after the governor of New York state, uh, Kathy Hochul announced basically or put into her budget, a proposal to remove the COVID specific um, state sick leave policy, which, Mm -hmm. you know, is one of the few states that actually had a COVID state sick leave policy. They pay for sick leave days for certain professions for COVID infections. And, you know, now this policy wasn't perfect, but it was something. And again, as one of the few places that did this, I think it's actually really interesting to look at like what this policy was if it goes away. And I like this description from Hellgate NYC. Um, Shout out to local and independent media. Um, But uh, so here's their rundown of how the COVID paid sick leave policy works and what Hochul wants to end. Quote, Businesses with 11 to 99 employees have to provide five paid sick days. Businesses with 100 or more employees, again, five paid sick days. I wonder why it's five, you know. Uh, Businesses with 100 or more employees, as well as all public employers, have to provide 14 days of sick leave. Employers with 10 or fewer workers and less than $1 million in revenue only have to provide unpaid sick days. But workers can get partial pay from state family leave and disability benefits. The policy also applies if an employee's child gets COVID and has to quarantine. That's important. The required COVID sick leave is in addition to any other paid time off an employer may offer, but workers are limited to using it three times in their lifetime, which I think is very fucked. Obviously, I think it's fucked if it's going away, but I find that last part very interesting. Like there, there is a limit on you can use this COVID sick leave policy three times and then you're out. But, you know, who is who is reported to have been the sort of muscle behind this, of course, but, you know, business groups, because they say, oh, it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think one of the things that's just frustrating, and I, I know we've said this kind of over and over, but such a theme of the pandemic is taking conditions that are productive of misery, of forced illness, of unnecessary exposure to COVID, the kind of financial burden of all these things and and really kind of naturalizing these conditions as important things we need to preserve. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Like the fight to save the right to exploit workers has been the greatest rallying cry of the pandemic, right? Not to do something anything to, you know, raise the bar collectively in terms of health, right? Even the smallest thing like a piece of guidance that is barely enforceable with your boss right that is already inadequate like why does that have to go 
right? In what world does that have to go where that that really kind of like has any kind of sense to it, right? And I know that a lot of times like when these changes happen, it can be a moment where where people are kind of like newly brought into sort of realizing that the pandemic has actually proceeded in the kind of highly socially produced way that it has. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that, you know, it becomes more and more obvious that despite the undoing of pandemic protections and the rallying cry of the pandemic is over, right? Clearly, things have not, quote unquote, gone back to normal. But what is happening is that there is incredible social pressure to now normalize what is going on right now as normal. And and so you have this kind of two-step process, right, where you naturalize the status quo. They're rising to the occasion to protect the right to exploit workers, to exploit school children, right? Yeah. As part of the exploitation of workers, right? Because why do we need to keep kids in school? Well, because we're talking about childcare infrastructure yeah. and we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, making sure that parents can get back to work and that, you know, like, for example, COVID, you can get COVID and you can spread it to everyone in your household and everyone in your house might be sick for two months, right? Progressively, one of you might be sick and under old guidance during the beginning of the pandemic, everyone would have had to stay home from work and school for that whole time, technically. Right. And so gradually we've seen the erosion, not just of guidance in terms of how to positively protect yourself, but in terms of protections against your boss's inclination to force you back to work sick, against Mm -hmm. the inclination of our political economy to normalize a level of annual illness that is just exponentially much larger than before. You know, do you remember how often you all got sick with the flu before COVID? Yeah. Not like... (laughs) Not not often. (laughs) Not the way that Michael Osterholm talks about it, where he talks about, you know, four or five infections, no big deal. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. you didn't get the flu every year, even. Right. I used to make I would get multiple times a year, maybe once a year, maybe. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. What and now it's being like normalized oh, yeah, you're now. Get COVID every time there's a way, you know, and they're they're trying to impose this weird seasonal. Pa- they're like, well, you know, we do see upticks around the holidays. It has settled into that pattern, and it's like, <laughs> no, it hasn't. You're telling like exactly what you're saying, B. You're telling people that now it's super, it's super normal, and in fact, it's good, and in fact, it's fair. You know, it's justice, it's equity. If you get COVID <laughs> every time, there is a surge of COVID cases, which is like every time the wrong vapors roll in on the right breeze. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry to cut you off, but yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And this, what's going on too, is that these changes are presented as innocuous as Mm -hmm. affectless Mm -hmm. as effectless. They don't change vibes and they don't change actual (laughs) COVID spread. Right. Couldn't possibly affect anything in the world. No, this is just abstract you know, guidance shots just into dots space. In a simulation, baby. It's just never to on be a looked at again. Yeah. You know, it's it's like, but no, actually, shifting this guidance, you encourage people to engage in activities when they may still be infectious. Right? We know the peak of shedding. Well, you allow you allow people who have power over other people to like pressure people into doing things. Right. You know, but you also encourage that, you yeah. know, these policies encourage oh, yeah. that, right. They, they, they gloss they do it with, not... a, with a fake scientific sheen that it's actually fine now. You know what I mean? And what I'm saying is I want to say that they go further than just permitting it. Right. This, as we were saying that the trust in, in public health argument that is touted so often, right. Is, such bullshit. And one of the reasons why that argument doesn't stand up is when you hold it up against actual guidance and actual behavior. As the CDC has said, take off your mask. It's fine. We've seen declines in vaccination rate. We've seen, you know, COVID spreading, regardless of the fact they said it wasn't going to be a big deal to do this, right? And instead of responding to that disease going through the population, they're normalizing it. They're normalizing this level of sickness and they're normalizing a level of sickness that, you know, looks a lot like how often I was sick as an immunocompromised person before I started responding to my additional risk of of exposure to disease (laughs) and of sickness when exposed. Yeah. Right. It's not funny, but I'm just like, yeah, when you put it like that, it's so clear. Like, yeah. 
what is trying to be normalized is something that I, as an immunocompromised person, experienced this level of sickness. It was fucking untenable. Mm -hmm. And I needed to make changes in my own life to accommodate this level of risk that I had taken on, right? If I had said to myself, you know, 15 years ago, you know, it's totally fine to get sick five or six times a year. This is awesome. You yeah, know, this, I would have lost, this is equity, actually. This rocks. I, love this. I would have lost like every job I lost over being disabled that much quicker. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I would have, you know, missed out on so much of my life because I was sick. I could uh, my symptoms could be way worse. Right. Like this is something that, you know, we can intervene in. We don't have to normalize. Right. And it's very possible to make these interventions because we were able to do it and demonstrate the efficacy of layered pandemic protections in 2020 before there was a vaccine when COVID was spreading in the United States, right? And instead of normalizing baseline precautionary principle, we don't know what we're dealing with with COVID long term. COVID is still new, just four and a half years old in terms of our data of COVID, right? We don't Send it have- to fucking school. Send it to school with lice. It's old enough to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, um... We don't have decades, you know, of of data on COVID is my point, right? And so to pretend like we do and to normalize the level of illness and the concentration of illness and the ways that this, like, again, makes us more precarious in terms of work and the way it shifts the balance of power in the workplace is really just, it's, it's frustrating, but it is also not just tacit approval, but it is encouraging this behavior. Yeah. Really quickly to a point that you were making just kind of a moment ago. Yes, there is a lot that we don't know, but there's a lot more that we know now compared yeah. to what we knew in 2021, for example, the last about time. About the that risk there of reinfection. Was, right. Well, not just about the risk of reinfection, but I think the thing that, um, B, I think it was you who mentioned much earlier uh, in the episode. It's a really good point, I think, to reiterate. One thing that we do know is you are more likely to develop long COVID if you're doing something like having to rush back to work quickly in the middle of either in the middle of still being infected or like quickly after an infection, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that we do know now. And so this could have really disastrous consequences Mm -hmm. in terms, just in terms of that, right? Yeah. Um, But in, in any case, I think, you know, speaking of 2021, before we kind of, you know, come to a conclusion here, I think it is important to kind of just take a step back and look back to the last time that this guidance change mm-hmm. was made. Because I think while I think a lot of people listening to this right now will kind of already know this history to some degree. And, you know, obviously we've been following it for a very long time. I remember when like when the guidance change was made in 2021, I think the episode that we did about it was called the title was CDC says back to work mm-hmm. should tell you everything you will need <laughs> to know about uh, what our assessment of it was. But, you know, I think what's what's important just to underline is that especially when you look at this change now in context with the last time it was changed from 10 days to five days in December 2021, These isolation guidelines themselves, especially in this relationship to the labor conditions in this country and all of that stuff and how COVID is a class issue, COVID is a labor issue. These isolation guidelines themselves have been such a good bellwether for how the CDC and the Biden administration Mm -hmm. more generally have approached the pandemic first and foremost as an economic problem. And so I think I want to have us take maybe a second to think back about how weird and abrupt that last guidance change was. Um, Mm -hmm. So weird and abrupt it was, actually, that I think it's completely memory hold how the timing was, mm-hmm, yeah. which is that first, you know, it wasn't just, oh, they they just like out of spun out of thin air, um, as uh, Walensky said, on Christmas, quote, literally Christmas, unquote, mm-hmm. um, which I always thought was funny. Uh, like, it's not just that they spun out of thin air on Christmas, like, OK, all of a sudden we're going down to five days. It, it sort of was like that, but it's it's memory hold that, for instance, first the CDC changed the guidance just for healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. And then there was this huge industry backlash, basically, that was like, well, what about us? And, you know, and within days, it was, it was also for them. I'm going to present a timeline in three New York Times headlines, if you'll indulge me. So here's from December 23rd. Headline, CDC shortens COVID isolation period for healthcare workers. Subheader is the agency issued revised guidelines as Omicron cases climb and hospitals grapple with worker shortages that have left wards understaffed. So that's December 23rd. December 24th, 
CDC faces pressure to change isolation guidelines for sick workers. Subheader, facing staffing shortages, companies are weighing conflicting guidance on when employees who have tested positive for the coronavirus can safely return to work. Then, December 27th is when the change comes through itself. Quote, as Omicron surges, officials shorten isolation times for many Americans. The subheader there is... Hoping to prevent further disruptions to daily life, the CDC reduced the period that certain infected Americans must sequester. Mm -hmm. Hilarious language. But I think, you know, the middle one is probably, I'm sure, the most, you know, I suspect will be the most interesting to us because it also kind of helps us make our point. Again, that was the the middle one is December 24th, quote, CDC faces pressure to change isolation guidelines for sick workers. That includes mention of things that we brought up in Many episodes, including that one that was, you know, CDC says back to work, but also in COVID year three, not four, three, um, which is the, uh, you know, the Delta Airlines CEO letter um, and things like that, that people have talked about quite a lot. But I also think it's really interesting because this article, for example, includes uh, expert comment from who other than Dr. Ashish Jha. Mm -hmm. No, not yet part of the administration not yet the COVID czar, also about a month away from another New York Times profile where he was profiled with Emily Oster in a feature interview by Kara Swisher. I remember that. <laughs> but, um, not a girl, you know, not yet a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but they, um, you know, they quote Ashish John here saying, quote, requirements for a longer isolation periods could also create disincentives for people to get tested, according to Dr. Ashish Jha, mm-hmm. Dean of Brown School of Public Health. Quote, there are going to be a lot of people who are, if they have mild symptoms, are going to test or not report because it's really substantial to be out for 10 days, unquote. And obviously then there's like the quotes that we could read that we've you know talked about a million times before i think be even or i think we even you know mentioned them much earlier all of the you know, we had statements from both Rochelle Walensky and Anthony Fauci at the time contemporaneous with this in December 2021 saying preserving economic functioning keep people at work mm-hmm. essentially was the gui- was the impetus for the guidance change um and you had reporting coming out right after that basically saying internally when Rochelle Walensky went to the team and said, you know, we're dropping it down to five days, do this. Here's like the New York Times, January 17th, for example, quote, on the Sunday night after Christmas, Dr. Walensky called an emergency meeting of the agency's COVID response leaders. She told them the agency would shrink the recommended isolation period. Stunned, the scientists scrambled to gather the limited data to support the recommendations and to rewrite the hundreds of pages on the agency website that touch on quarantine and isolation. There was so little evidence for shortened isolation that the quote-unquote science brief that typically accompanies guidance was downgraded to a quote rationale document. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's, again, we've told this story many times in many different ways, yeah. so I'm really just glossing over parts of it. But I think it's important to reiterate some of these key parts of it because it really is just, you know, perpetuation of capitalism. Right. It right. really is just economic imperatives that they're following no and i'll add that you know one of the things that i think is also important to remember about that time period is that christmas 2021 this is the first kind of covid christmas where people are really traveling right so according to tsa reports from 2021 between december 23rd and december 25th in the united states 5.4 million people went through security screenings, which is about double the same period um, in 2020. So we had an immediate um, doubling of the amount of people that were traveling through airports, right? We had pressure from airport CEOs. We had, uh, you know, pressure from the fact that they have chosen for many years now to run such lean staffing, that there weren't enough people to fly the planes, there weren't enough people to staff the planes, There aren't enough people trained in the United States to do this job anymore because the staffing is run so lean. Um, Why would the guidance do this to us? (laughs) (laughs) You know, this was the winter of severe illness and death, by the way. This is what you're Mm -hmm. describing. It was. And I remember it was like the day after Thanksgiving. So it was like late November when the first reports about Omicron 
you know, were starting to come out. And I remember the grim fucking like drumbeat of like leading up to the holiday season, you know, because all the reporting was there's a new COVID variant, but it is so mild. Like you have never seen a variant so mild. It is so not a big deal. And explicitly the message being pushed out, you know, from the federal government on down through, you know what I mean? Every agency, all the media, everything was do not cancel your holiday plans. Omicron is not that big a deal. Okay. Mm -hmm. Don't get so scared of this thing that you stay home. Don't get so scared of this thing that you don't go shopping. Don't get so scared of this thing that you don't travel, you know? So like this whole situation was created. Like we were basically like forcibly marched into holiday travel, you know, that winter, you know, when, when the Omicron variant hit the United States, then it was, oh, well, if you're vaccinated, it's fine. Uh, If you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. Otherwise you're going to fucking die. And yeah, like this, the first guidance change came in the middle of that wave that was so, I mean, it was huge. It was so impactful. It's so infuriating, you know, that the response to that is, oh, well, it's the guidelines that's causing, that's causing, you know, these, these massive societal disruptions. Yeah. Again, why would the guy, like, why would the guidance, would the guidelines do, this guidelines to do this to us? So yeah. we just need mm-hmm. to change the guidelines and then it's like all fine. But there's something so irreparably fucked about that because I mean, as we've been saying this whole episode, that doesn't, that's just a vibe. Like that doesn't change a single fucking thing about what's actually going on. And now, yeah, yeah, we're three years later down the road and it's the same, it's the same thing that's happening um, in, in a slightly different context. Well, and I'd like to sort of bring in a couple of other pieces of context too for that last guidance change, because this is something, uh, again, that we talk about in the episode COVID year three, which is our end of 2021 and the most of the year 2022 year in review for COVID, you know, in addition to sort of the, the like acute business pressure, the lobbying that was going on at the time, there was also a lot of, you know, public discourse among sort of the usual suspects, I guess I would say that was pushing for like, do we really have, I mean, the president says it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. We're all vaccinated. Do we really have to isolate anymore? Um, Here's like the Atlantic, December 7th uh, headline. Why are we still isolating vaccinated people for 10 days? Because they can still transmit the virus. Next question. Again, that's like a week (laughs) after Omicron emerges. Mm -hmm. Vox's Dylan Scott, December 17th, 10 days later. Does it still make sense for vaccinated people with COVID-19 to isolate for 10 days? You also had the same day, December 17th. uh, Again, we talk about this in COVID year three. December 17th, 2021, Ashish Jha on NPR's All Things Considered says, quote, we do not need to be doing mass quarantining right now. We have kids across America at home waiting out a 14 day quarantine. Totally unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Unquote. Three months later, he's in the fucking White House. Mm -hmm. I mean, you Mm -hmm. know, it's not hard to... (laughs) Like 2021 isn't on trial here, obviously. 2021 isn't like the the point here, but the events of 2021 and how latent Mm -hmm. and how obscenely just for the purposes of, you know, we couldn't possibly let Build-A-Bear have staffing shortages. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like how blatant that was. Won't someone think of the children? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it, it helps. I think it really helps make it very clear. This is not just the oh you know things are rosy and cheery now this is well they've waited a couple of years they caught a lot of flack for how blatant it was the last time they waited Mm -hmm. a while they're uh and now they're like okay in april we're gonna we're gonna maybe do this let's be really quiet about like and you know that's everyone who cares about class politics anyone who claims to care about working people anyone who claims to care about Mm -hmm. disabled people uh people who can't work people whatever this is a change that's hard setting a precedent for, well, you know, we never did this before. Like scrap the idea that perhaps, you know, maybe we should have allowed people to have more sick days for flu or to isolate from mm-hmm. the flu, mm-hmm. yes. et cetera. No, we're going to harmonize it with all the completely irresponsible stuff that we did before. That was both, <laughs> that was basically just something that we did for the purposes of labor discipline and for the purposes of keeping the, wheels of capitalism greased no matter how much blood is the grease Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and i want to just say i want to bring in sort of one last receipt here that i want to make sure that for folks who may not have um who may memory hold this this moment or just want like a refresher i want to read to you all from a washington post piece 
from uh, December 28th, 2021, called New CDC Guidelines Were Spurred by Worries Omicron Surge Could Lead to Breakdown in Essential Services. Health officials worried that mass infections could result in tens of thousands of Americans unable to work, Mm. which is a telling um, thing. So it ends with the following uh, three paragraphs, which this comes right after the guideline change is um, announced. Quote, the guidelines could offer relief to airlines, which began preemptively canceling flights before Christmas as coronavirus cases spiked among their crews. Carriers had lobbied the CDC for changes last week, arguing that it would be impossible to keep planes in the air with so many employees out with infections. The airline industry group Airlines for America hailed the decision, quote, the aviation workforce is essential to maintaining the operations of air travel and cargo supply chains, the group said in the statement. Holly Wade, executive director of the National Federation of Independent Business, also applauded the decision, saying it could help alleviate workforce disruptions affecting many companies. Mm-hmm. So. This period also, for people who have read Health Communism, this is the period when Artie and I are finishing the first draft of the book, actually, and turning it in. And part of the reason there isn't a chapter on COVID, but there is an incredible focus on the way that your health is really kind of recognized by the political economy as your capacity to work, right? And why that was such an important thing for us to foreground in the book you know, it had already been part of the project that we were writing anyways, but this is the precipice that we were looking at as we were finishing the book. And as yeah. already said, a lot of our analysis on this comes out of COVID year three, which happens at the end of 2022, right after the book has already come out. Well, and also when we're writing it, finalizing that draft, basically, it's so evident to us, as we're saying constantly on the show at that point, right. that things are far from over and right. that so much more of the disaster to come is not going to be possible to be documented in the thing that we're like putting out to press at the moment. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and I, I think one of the things that Artie and I talked about a lot as we were sort of finalizing the draft is, as we said, you know, we have this hunch based on the last, you know, year and a half, in particular, the last year of the Biden administration from May of 2021 saying, take off your masks if you're vaccinated to July 4th, declaring independence on the virus to the pandemic of the unvaccinated, to the winter of severe illness and death, to this change in the guidance, right? And we have Mm -hmm. all sorts Mm -hmm. of things happening that we're covering that year with you, Abby, looking at the ways that teachers unions are being disciplined, right? And the thing that is just fucking frustrating and terrible, right, is that with every sort of progressive guideline change we've seen throughout the ongoing shift of COVID from being a priority and a collective problem to COVID being an individual problem to COVID being about measuring and calculating risk and then segmenting the populations in an imaginary way as if they don't interact with each other mm-hmm. to, you know, COVID is mild to COVID is no big deal to long COVID is not real. All of these things ultimately come down to the relationships that we have as, you know, earning serving units is is the kind of framework that Marta Russell used. And that's one of the things that we we quote her on in the book, which is we are valuable to the economy insofar as we are at work. Mm-hmm. And when we are not at work, you know, we're useless eaters. It, just to go back to the, the subhead of this piece in Washington Post I read from, right? Health officials worried that mass infections could result in tens of thousands of Americans unable to work. This was a decision made due to crisis levels of understaffing at hospitals. Yes. Pressure from businesses equated the crisis of understaffing in hospitals with holiday flights being canceled. The CDC caved to that, right? They recognized the consequences of that, I'm sure. I'm sure that there are people inside the CDC who see things the way that we see things, and perhaps that's why this new guidance change is being announced for April and why they put it on ice in the fall. Yep. But regardless of any lesson they may have learned about motherfucking timing and tact... It doesn't make any of what they're doing okay or backed in science, right? Right. Or good for your quote-unquote health. Unless, of course, your health is merely your capacity to work. And CDC says, get back to work. And we don't give a fuck if you're sick, you know? And ultimately... Well, if you're working, you're not sick. So there you go. (laughs) I was going to say, if you're at work, then you're healthy. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter who you may infect. 
you know, if you're at work, you're healthy. Mm-hmm. Pat yourself on the back, bro. Mm-hmm. And what we're really seeing in this this guideline change, right, in this potential guideline change is a reiteration of the real kind of underlying core proof for the argument that COVID is a labor issue, right? That COVID is not just about the impact on vulnerable people and how vulnerable people are not a part of the community, right? That is part of how the kind of construction of COVID not being a labor issue is being reinforced. And this is part of what we're fighting against and what we have been fighting against this whole time. And unfortunately, the virus has not changed. What has changed is that we know all of the terrible things that it does to the body in way more detail with way more real world evidence than should have happened, right? Because absolutely, it's possible to protect yourself from COVID with layered mitigations. It's very difficult to do that in our let it rip society. And that's ultimately sort of what has changed about the virus has not, you know, been this kind of act of God, right? But it relates to the political economy. It relates to priorities. It relates to, you know, ultimately the fact that the underlying principle, as you're saying, of of public health right now in the United States, but also in some ways historically, has always been about, you know, securing access to the workplace for the vast majority of the population and any kind of abstraction that goes into that, right? And the kind of benefits of public health that we like to talk about in terms of equity, in terms of modernity, right? That these are things that ultimately are not the core priorities of this discipline as we are living with it right now, as it sort of mediates the pandemic. Yeah. The only thing I will add to close is that there's a lot of I think very silly debate going on out there about how public health like isn't political and shouldn't be political. And I think that what this really illustrates, I mean, like the head of the CDC is a political appointee. Political considerations are baked into the conduct of public health. And I think that everything we've been talking about illustrates that definitively. And I hope that this can put to bed maybe some of the very silly discourse that I often see about how, oh, public health would be amazing and would do everything we wanted it to do if only we could get politics out of it. You know, that that is simply not possible <laughs> and that's never going to happen. And I think we have to be clear eyed about what public health actually is doing, how it actually is functioning politically. If we are ever going to have any hope of reorienting public health towards what I think its core values really are, um, we yeah. have to be willing yeah. to fight in that arena. Exactly. And then also, you know, and this also helps us see again, as I kind of mentioned before, how the changes to and undoing of public health guidance around COVID show us very clearly how, as B has been saying, as we've been saying for well, a very long time now, how clearly the Biden administration have approached this as an economic problem, mm-hmm. not a public health problem, not even so much a political problem, although they, although they have used politics to sort of say, oh, it's just, you know, fenced off into this, you know, public health realm. That's what the the faint is right that is the idea that the isolation guidance just exists in a vacuum right that it's like just public health policy that has nothing to do with the absence of social policy right that if we have some sort of you know problem that we view not really so much as a problem but that we present as a fact of life by which i mean the idea that oh no one's doing this anyway therefore let's just do away with it that that is the siloed public health response somehow as opposed to what other arms of the state need to be mobilized so that people can actually follow the guidance so that the guidance is more than fucking words yeah. mm-hmm. right it's the same fucking thing with masking politicians and the media have constantly said oh well no one masks anyway no one wants to mask etc <laughs> blah 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 what material support have people gotten for masking yes it's expensive to mask everywhere I'm not saying that everyone like we're when people are saying there should be universal masking, they're not saying people should that everyone should bear the financial burden of fucking protecting themselves. They're saying perhaps certain protections like this, much like certain protections like sick days, are things that should potentially be capacities of the state if we're going to use the state for anything. Again, right? What if we regardless of what you think the state is for under this current formulation of the state, right? I mean, social supports like this would seem to be a pretty important response to a pandemic, right? You know, one of my takeaways for this in in all of this conversation is, you know, regardless of where 
you fall in terms of the like class analysis, for instance, that we're putting forward, even if you're just like kind of uh, one of the, I don't know, health policy reporters who kind of listens to this and like disagrees with us about most things or something, but mm-hmm. just, you know, is uh, interested in what these fucking communists are saying about it. Right. Like, even if you're one of these people, it should be impossible to talk about this change in the isolation guidance without talking about something like paid leave. Mm-hmm, right. It should be impossible to talk about changes to masking guns without our people being provided free masks. It should be, you know, all of these other things. But since this is the most recent frontier of the CDC, you know, announcing that they are packing it in and shutting the last of the few lights that were on off. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, these are very important demands and questions that need to be asked of the Biden administration. Do you really think that it's just some quality of people that they are not going to do this anyway or perhaps there are other fucking capacities of the state that you have chosen not to mobilize Mm -hmm. that would make things very different so absolutely i think that's the perfect place to leave it for today to support the show and get access to all of the bonus episodes as well as the entire back catalog become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up copies of Health Communism and A Short History of Transmisogyny at your local bookstore or request them at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we'll catch you Monday in the patron feed. Everyone else, we will see you later in the week next week. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. No